HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker's first-of-its-kind virtual agritourism conference. For more information, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. Hi, and welcome to Opening Soon on Heritage Radio Network. We are your hosts, Jenny Goodman and Alex McCreary. Opening Soon is a weekly show that will walk you through the steps of opening a restaurant through conversations with some of the world's greatest chefs, restaurateurs, and the vendors that help take their business from just an idea to opening soon. Jenny and I have been in the hospitality business for over 25 years. I've been fortunate enough to be part of opening one restaurant that still stands today and humbled enough to have owned one restaurant named Goods that lasted less than six months. When launching Goods, we failed to create a business plan before jumping in. We didn't bother with a partnership agreement, and we missed some major components of our income statement. Our experience with Goods is a big reason we feel we're the ones that can ask the questions. Basically, we need answers. Aside from our own firsthand experience inside restaurants, including one pretty epic fail, we are currently the founders of Tillit NYC hospitality workwear brand that has proudly outfitted over 4,000 restaurants and counting since launching our business in 2012. We are so fortunate to witness many restaurants come to life. Being part of that journey is one of the best parts of our job, and we want to share that feeling and all those lessons that can be learned with all of you. Our goal is that this podcast will help bridge the gap between the teacher and the student, help alleviate some of the risk when you're opening your restaurant, and offer you some lessons that you might have been looking for when building your business plan. So the first 12 episode season will sequentially take you through the steps of your business plan from choosing your partners to nailing design and to getting those doors actually open. We will be picking the brains of industry leaders, including chef Missy Robbins, Camilla Marcus, and Steven Satterfield, just to name a few. So if you're in the process of building a business plan, just starting culinary school, improving or expanding in your current business, or just fascinated by what it takes to get the restaurant open, we hope this podcast will entertain educate and inspire you on your journey from idea to opening soon follow the journey on heritage radio and subscribe on itunes stitcher or anywhere else you get your podcasts and don't forget to follow us on instagram at we are opening soon and at tillit nyc
Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Today I'm here with John Chester, a farmer and filmmaker, the co-founder of Apricot Lane Farms in California, and the creator of the new documentary, The Biggest Little Farm. John, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great. Um, so are you here in New York to promote the film? Yeah, um, <clears throat> coming up on the release May 10th. Um, so we're all getting excited. So I get to leave the farm for a week while my wife and son manage everything else. <laughs> I was going to ask you, you know, I'm so excited to have you here, but I was going to ask you, like, where's Molly? I wish she was here, too. <laughs> I feel like I know her from watching the film. Yeah, the look of disappointment on most people's faces when I walk in without Molly <laughs> is becoming more apparent. Uh, no, Molly's, uh, it's funny, we, we talk a lot about as a family, like, how are we going to do this, you know, be farmers and also promote this you know, this story of our eight-year journey. Right. Um, and we decided to, you know, you got to divide and conquer because that, that's what the farm needs. There's things that are alive there that need attention. Right, absolutely. Right. Um, and so, oh, that's interesting. I was going to ask you about the time period. And um, so it was eight years when you started the farm? Yeah, eight years. So the farm originally was a conventionally run uh, lemon farm, you know, extractively farmed. Right. Um, everything was, the soil was white. It was uh, so depleted. And we didn't really know enough about it back then to, to see that as a huge problem. <clears throat> so yeah. um, it took some time. But yeah, it's been eight years since the beginning. And now we grow 250 different things, definitely vertically integrated farm. Diversity. <laughs> Lots of biodiversity. We took that too literally. Right. Um, you know, there's about 850 to 1,000 animals, cows, pigs, sheep, chickens. Wow. You name it, we got it. Guardian dogs, guinea hens, just just to throw that in there, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and I I guess, can you sort of, let, let's take a step back, actually, um, before we get into how the actual farm works. Um, first of all, I watched the film yesterday. It's beautiful. Um, it's really, really affecting. Um, and I mean, it's about farming, but it's about family and... It's about life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it really... I, I think one thing that's really cool about it is I could see people who have no interest in farming still feeling really affected by it. Um, well, yeah, I think that's one of the reasons I made the film. It, it really isn't so much... A, it is about our farming journey, but it is, um, you know, the deeper you look into the complexity of nature it's mirroring back our human journey. Um, it, it, for me, makes sense poetically of a lot of the things that I hadn't had answers to in life and reconnects you know, me to, I think, a deeper understanding about what life is um, through understanding the impermanence of life and all the other different metaphors that you could conjure up between, you know, the relationship between a, an ant and an aphid and a, yeah. <clears throat> and, um, you know, a ladybug. Um, it's, it's, it's endless in that way. And that's what the film really is. And it, and it's, I think it's unflinchingly, um, honest and raw in terms of the hard, the hardships. I mean, it's a, it's been a terrifying journey. There's been a tremendous amount. So all that's in there. Yeah, and, and the, that idea of sort of your changing understanding of nature, um, that was one of the, the coolest parts of the film for me. I mean, I think 
you know, it seemed like you, you started out with this really idealistic idea about farming in harmony with nature and then kind of were faced with the brutality of nature pretty quickly. Yeah, so when you're trying to integrate a farm within a reawakened ecosystem, which is mm. what we had to do before we could really integrate, you open Pandora's box, you know, and the idealism gets checked. Yeah. Um, and the uh, you realize the reason why we've, for 7,500 years, have, have worked to put nature in a straitjacket, mm. you know, and yet just on the other side of that, you know, um, explosion of life that suddenly starts to seem to work against you, um, you begin to see these mutualistic relationships and you start to take the principles of biomimicry and figure out how and why it works the way it does. And then, in, you know, kind of hack into that in a way that is unobtrusive and hopefully um, creates a system that um, prevents epidemics of pests and disease through you know, the principles of biological diversity and regeneration. Right. How, and you see it kind of in the film, you see you and Molly figuring that out little by little and, and kind of creating that ecosystem. Um, it takes a long time, right? Yeah, it takes a long time. Uh, like how, how long was it before you felt like, oh, okay, we're kind of getting to a place where this is definitely going to work? Well, I, I, that was the thing is that I think even in the film, I didn't even know I w was going to make a film about mm. this. You know, I, I wasn't convinced that A, I had anything to say, um, and B, that it would work. And so I didn't want to make a film about my wife and I sort of fish out of water, mm. city folk, and then this complete failure. Right. But around year five, I saw this incredible return of life. And I saw these problems sort of start to balance out through, you know, the return of uh, gopher snakes and barn owls and ladybugs and um, red tail and red shoulder hawks. And um, I was watching the coyotes sort of transform the land in a way that we thought not possible. And I knew that no one would probably spend the time as a storyteller inside the engine of, of an ecosystem like this during its reawakening. And I... I was always shooting stuff, but I never really thought I'd make the film. Mm. But at year five, I knew it was just so profound. I, I was like, this, I don't know that this story will ever be told in this way again. Right. Uh, in, in such a, you know, and it was important to me that it was very cinematic because it's deserving of that, you know? And that took a lot of time to get those, to capture those relationships and watch this thing happen. And then simultaneously, there was, you know, terrible things, you know, drought and fire and, um, you know, hard issues with animals and that struggle too. But it really was, um, yeah, that was the opportunity that I saw. Right. And it kind of seemed like you were filming the whole time. Like, I, how are you managing that alongside it, all of the challenges it, of the farm? It was um, ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but, we, you know, I also had some, they started as interns and they became um, really competent, you know, shooters. You know, it's mm. funny, like, They'll come to, they'll, they'll go to school for one thing, but a lot of, a lot of young people will actually know how to work Final Cut, you mm. know, and they'll know how to run a 5D camera and, and, and shoot films. But um, I had a couple that had, one had been to film school and another had just interest. And so I really, you know, showed them kind of how to, how to sh frame and shoot this film the way I wanted it shot. And, um, and they're deserving a lot of credit for, for what was done. And then I, as it developed around the year, year five, I started working with some of the more professionals 
professional team that I had worked with in the past and others um, to really sort of focus for three years on capturing stuff. So, you know, we were shooting on, you know, anything from an Amira camera, which is a 4K camera, to an iPhone, to a GoPro, you know, whatever it, it took. But the, but the film, I think, doesn't look like that. It, it, it's, it doesn't, no. It's very cinematic. And it's very, right, cinematic. Yeah. It's very, like, um, it's a narrative in a really cool way. You know, I think it's, it almost feels weird to call it a documentary, even though it is obviously documenting this whole process. Um, but, but it is told more narratively. Yeah, yeah, it's not the like talking head documentary. No. And that was but, really important. Yeah. And it's also like not preaching. And I, and that was also very important to the process is that mm-hmm. I think we're showing a lot of environmental films and it's trying to scare the hell out of us to, to think and change the way we act, you know, think differently and change, change the way we act. And I don't think that's what creates a long-lasting effect on the way we live our lives. I think Wendell Berry captured it nicely in a speech that he uh, lecture. He titled it all, it all turns on affection. And I really believe that to be the most profound type of change because you're giving people a new lens to look at things through. And it's one where they are in love with the complexities and possibilities that exist inside of it. And those people will work harder to try to find a way to collaborate versus one that controls nature. Right. And I think that's, those are the stories that we need right now because it's not all scary. We're an incredibly powerful force of nature in the same way that we've done things to damage it. With consciousness, I think we have the ability to change it. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about some of the the ways that you were able to do that on your farm. So, you know, you set out with this idea, like I said, of farming in harmony with nature and confronted many challenges along the way, um, but ultimately transformed this sort of barren land, right, into really fertile farmland where you're growing 250 different crops. Which is not advisable. (laughs) Oh, the the 250 part, you mean? Yeah, you, yeah could, okay. you could be very happy with growing like three or four different things and still have a lot of biodiversity. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> tip, num- farmer tip number yeah, one. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Don't do as we did. <laughs> um, but so, but what are some of um, the things that you learned along the way about how to really make a farm like this work? In a, in a practical sense, I think, you know, the first and foremost is that plants build soil and without cover crop, you know, there's not going to be a soil system to cycle nutrients um, and make minerals available to plants in the root zone. So we had to start with that. I mean, we started planting cover crops and, you know, the first two, three years it wouldn't take because there was like, you know, the, the biota of the soil. There was not a, uh, there was not a, you know, a biology that was supporting life Mm. in that soil. So we had to slowly feed it, you know, liquefied carbonic sugars through the process of photosynthesis, right, of plants sort of shooting that into the ground and feeding microorganisms and then providing that organic matter that then allows, you know, mycorrhizae fungi and the mycelia to sort of take over and start transferring nutrients. I mean, all that stuff takes a few years, Yeah. you know, so while it didn't seem like it was going to work. Like we would plant it, cover crops and it looked like these cornrows and then it would just like peter out and die. Huh. You know, um, but around year four and five, the, the spacing between the grasses 
grew together Started to where to it was like first it was like 14 inches and then it was six and now like you go out and it's like two to three inches in some areas you can't even see the soil mm. um you know and the clovers and stuff like that just sort of coming back almost on their own and yeah so I mean, cover crop is a big uh, obviously the most important thing we did mm. um and ultimately will pay off for us in terms of the long-term you know immune system build up of the farm building back that immunity right and what about pest management? Because that's a huge part of the film. Yeah. <laughs> From coyotes to... Snails. Oh my gosh, snails. the snails were... <laughs> and, and the crazy thing about the snails was they were because of the cover crop, Yes, right? everything we did made everything worse. Right. So like, uh, <clears throat> we created the worst gopher problem in Ventura County. If anyone knows what I can do with gophers, we will be in the, in the black tomorrow. Um, <laughs> but we created one of the worst gopher problems in the county because of our cover crop. And uh, one of the worst snail problems as well. Um, although snails are not native t- to that area, they are, uh, you know, they do devastating job to the leaves of citrus trees. So, um, and then not to mention the coyotes and everything else because of all the, I mean, they killed 350 of our chickens before we figured out a solution mm. for that. Um, and that's a big turning point in the film, <clears throat> quite r- revealing to me personally. Yeah. Um, uh, but yes, yeah, so like the, the, I mean, do you want to go into some of the, well, yeah, I'm just <clears> curious we, if you could talk a little bit about kind of how you troubleshooted, you know, dealing with all these pests. And I mean, obviously we can, we can't get into the exact yeah. um, process of each one, but I think there's something about, you know, you're sort of, you kind it seems like you kind of developed this way of looking at a problem and thinking about it differently. And exactly like, mm-hmm. well, the first thing is that any farmer knows, especially a new farmer, um, is that there's a couple of emotions that happen in the, in the moment of failure. And, and one of them, especially when you have people around you on your farm is embarrassment. And that embarrassment will lead to, you know, frustration and anger. And then the first thing you want to do is sort of fix that problem so that all the embarrassment and the anger goes away or the anger drives maybe a, a, a too quick of a fix. And the real trick that we learned after five years was that in that embarrassment is the moment when you're to not do anything and get really still and start to understand what fuels that problem. Um, what in nature through biomimicry could control and it's never one solution the ecosystem doesn't work in that way, right? It, right? it offers multiple solutions for a single problem. And so you have to come at it. And I, I look at it like this. We have, we have all these tiny little Nerf bats, you know, and you can't really, you can't really stop an intruder in your house with one Nerf bat. But if you had a hundred, <laughs> it might deter them. And that's okay. kind of the way nature works. You know, it doesn't have this idea of massive collateral damage to correct. So it's a very careful process. And I think that's, as we got better and more comfortable with the you know, allowing embarrassment to be part of the process, we were able to find more long-lasting, substantial solutions to problems that were creating a coexistence and true integration within our ecosystem. Right. And I don't want to give away everything that happens in the film, but can you just give me one example of that? Sure. That? <clears throat> um, sure. The, uh, uh, the, the gophers. Mm. Um, we spent probably, I mean, it's 214 acres. And we spent probably about $100,000 hiring three guys full-time to catch gophers for a year. And they caught 9,000 gophers. But what I didn't know and what I should have done was this, because a few years later, I started putting up owl boxes. We spent 
I don't know, $700 on outboxes. By year five or six, or actually by seventh, by the seventh year, we counted 87 barn owls on the farm in one year, eating an estimated 15,000 gophers. Oh my God. <laughs> for the price of $700. But see, that in, the innovation and the lure of farming in this way has been lost over 7,500 years or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And so we're kind of having to like re, reinvent something that, you know, that could have been passed down, but those, those links have been broken. Yeah. So like most of the expense of the farm were in trying things that were not in the, you know, um, in the interest of the true collaboration. They were like trying to control something. Um, but then we, at simultaneously over those five to six years leading up to the seventh year, we were seeing the return of gopher snakes. And the guys used to kill the gopher snakes. Uh. And then we were seeing, so we don't kill gopher snakes, of course, on the farm. Right. We were seeing badgers return. You ever seen a badger? It's like a little corgi. Yeah, They're absolutely. mean as hell, too, <laughs> and as vicious. I mean, I'm, I, everyone on the farm is scared of badgers. We're scared of rattlesnakes, but badgers, I think. <laughs> and then um, the other thing we learned were coyotes eat a lot of gophers mm. i mean gophers in small quantities are good they till the soil they inoculate the soil they're tra- you know trailing fungus mm-hmm. and you know bacteria good bacteria and bad, bad stuff through the soil but they're aerating stuff but yeah so there's there's and then weasels you ever seen like a they look like a ferret yeah, like a yeah. fox and a ferret combined right <laughs> um they're adorable but all these things come back now and are have come back on our farm because of this massive problem you know but you can help advance it you can you can you can bring it back sooner. So if I had started, if I had done it, could do it again, I would have put those barn owl boxes the day we bought the farm. Right. But I didn't know that. But you didn't, yeah. Right. Yeah. How did how did you who came up with the idea of the owl? Like was that research that you? I mean, there's a lot of this. All of this stuff is borrowed from other farms mm. and or just trial and error. You know, you hear about these. Not any one consultant has taught us everything. You know, um, and you and and you're constantly getting advice that you just don't really believe is possible because it just seems too idealistic. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but, um, yeah, I can't attribute it to any one, you know, one person, but I know I'd heard about it being done and I'm seeing it more and more now, uh, throughout Southern California, people are really seeing the power of barn owls. Interesting. You have flying angels over your farm yeah. at night. It's amazing. It's so wonderful. You like shine a light up in the sky and there's just like these white things everywhere. It's beautiful. That's amazing. Um, okay. We need to take a quick break, um, for a word from a sponsor. And when we come back more with John Chester. This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker's first-of-its-kind virtual agritourism conference. Did you know that every $1 invested in tourism marketing returns on average $3 to $8 back? Not a bad ROI. Learn how to grow your agritourism business via 12 workshops entirely women-led. The local travel landscape is rapidly changing to meet the demands of the leisure, event, and corporate travel sectors. Whether you're a farmer or producer, a winemaker, a restaurateur, or a destination marketing organization, there's more opportunity than ever to capture these markets. The Virtual Agritourism Conference will provide you with insights and skills to keep your target demographic coming back for more. 14 speakers providing six plus hours of education that you can watch at your convenience anytime on any device. Maximize your time, budget, and resources, and focus on creative solutions to help your business thrive. 
Presented by Escape Maker and Fulton Stall Market, the full conference access pass is now available for purchase. Use the code HERITAGE2019 for $50 off a full pass at checkout. For more information and to purchase your pass, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio. I'm here talking to John Chester, the farmer and filmmaker behind The Biggest Little Farm. Um, So before the break, we were talking a lot about the farm and the way that you do things. One thing that we didn't talk about and actually is not in the film at all that I wanted to ask you about is the economics. So we talked about the fact that it's eight years that you're doing this. And for a lot of the film, you're just, it's trial and error and you're not, nothing's growing. How were you managing the economics of that? When did you start making money? How did that all work? So getting into this from the beginning, we partnered with uh, an investor who understood that we were going to be in a restorative process with this land that had Mm. been, you know, extractively farmed in order to grow food cheap you have to do it on the backs of the soil, mm-hmm. right? So you're not putting it anything back. And we, like I said before, it's 45 years or 50 years of this extractive method. We had dead soil. It was going to take some time. We also um, had an alignment, you know, with our um, investor partners who saw the value in, in this way of farming in the long term because they see that, you know, flavor and nutrient density is the future, you know, food is the medicine, and medicine is the food. So, and more and more people are understanding that, but that comes from a really healthy soil. So they were, you know, they're very patient. Um, and I think the process has taken a little bit longer than we had all hoped, as in most ventures. But you, you can't repair a bank that's been robbed, you know, without putting money back in. Mm. Um, but what we're seeing now is we're not actually spraying as much you know, um, even by, you know, organically derive um, pesticides that we're allowed to use. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not spraying nearly as much as our neighbors. Um, but the, the, the other thing, too, is that, you know, we, we, we paid the same price for the farmland that any other farmer would pay for it. Right. You know, <clears throat> and the expense was like eliminating a crop that's very popular in that area, which is like um, lemons. We eliminated a good number of lemon trees. So we were adding back in diversity to try to experiment with what could be the future crop that could be grown with the water restrictions that are now affecting Ventura County. Um, but there's, it's an inescapable truth that there's going to be an economic you know, investment. I, if I could do it again, I probably would do it where there's water. <laughs> I'd probably do it back on the East Coast, but there, you right. know, have a year-round growing season too. I was just gonna say, yeah, but the East Coast then has its own farming challenges, right? Right, and I and I grew up in a town that was, you know, three hours from the nearest big city, and I'm 45 minutes from, you know, 12 million people between mm. LA and Santa Barbara, and there's a price you pay to be in proximity to your clientele, and for a farm like this to work, it's a direct-to-consumer relationship, right? Right, so that is that all those things sort of culminate around the idea of like the economic sort of sustainability of a farm like this um but yeah i mean it takes it, it it's taken a a pretty i think uh, you know courageous investment but we are we just see the future in this you know and i mean here's the thing the the economics of anything of any you know of any country of any culture um mean nothing without the finite you know 
non-renewable resources that exist in nature and our stewardship over it. Countries will fall without soil, you know, and in a flash, we've destroyed more than a third of our topsoil, you know, deforested 46% of the trees, you know, doubled carbon, um, atmospheric carbon by, you know, from 260 to 400 parts per million. Mm -hmm. And so we got into this because we were cheap, you know, as a culture, as a people, we're all complicit and we're not going to get out of it with some, with some investment back into it. Right. And that's sort of what I was getting at. It's like the, you know, we're in this place where we, we need more people to do what you're doing, but you know, it's, it's hard. It can be hard to find that investment and it, it takes a while, right? And yeah, it's like it, to find that person, the investor who understands that and can... Yes. It, yeah. With our situation and some of our naiveness, yes, it's going to take more, but that doesn't mean that there's not regenerative farms that are, you know, could be profitable in the first two years of operation mm. or even sooner. Um, it's knowing the conditions of the land and having a lot more, you know, maybe experience than we had when we started. Um Perhaps there's a long-term payoff here that we, you know, and that's what we see that's more viable as an investment. But if the short term is important to you, then really focus on the soil quality of the land that you're starting on. And there's a, what, what's really cool, especially with the films, I'm watching more and more people who are, who have land and who want to open it up to a farmer who would farm it in a regenerative way, mm. who would treat the farm as an ecosystem. And they're looking for young people to partner with and collaborate with. Um, you know, and there's more and more, um, you know, I, I know like the slow money, mm-hmm. uh, microfinancing and stuff like that. And, right. you know, regenerative organic certification, which is through like Patagonia National Science Foundation and Bronner's. Dr. Bronner's. Dr. Bronner's. Yeah. You know, they're they're I know they've talked about creating sort of like a microfinancing thing for new farmers. That is increasingly becoming a thing, you know, and I can tell you as a farmer who works with a lot of young wolfers and stuff like that, there's a an amazing number of people that really want the opportunity. Right. So have hope in that. And, and, and I, and I think that those partnerships exist. And once you got to a place where the farm is up and running, you're growing this incredible food, does it feel like a long-term sustainable business? Absolutely. I mean, we very well could be the last farm standing. I mean, we also could not be, but in a way, like I watched the farm, uh, just next door to us, you know, the well broke, and the, the, the berry farm that was leasing his land was gone within four months. They just left. It's crazy. I mean, they're not going to hang around. Mm-hmm. And so now what's that guy going to do with, he scraped all of his topsoil off. All that's growing out there right now is, is mustard. And I'm sure the next move will be to try to sell it and make, you know, build houses on it because who's going to want to come farm that? Right. You know, and I think, again, we're building up the immunology of our land. The immune system. I mean, there's, there's certain the chemicals that we use to control things are not working anymore because of these mutations that are starting to happen, right? With even within weed control and when you say we, you mean like but in conventional not us, agriculture, yeah, not us, yeah, yeah in, mm-hmm. in, in, in industrialized mm-hmm. agriculture, right? They were all complicit in. This is not right. a us first them. Let me just say, actually, I think it's really important to say that I think. The control over where we're going is not over how we conf- whether we confront Monsanto and confront the farmer that we think is farming in the wrong way. They are responding to a need that the consumer is paying for. And if consumers choose differently, trust me, that farmer's son or daughter 
would love to farm in a more regenerative way. And if we want to not be relying upon chemicals, then we need to innovate around. So instead of confrontation, we need to encourage a culture of innovation. Hmm. I digress. Where were we talking, <laughs> what okay. were we talking about? <clears throat> That's my soapbox. <laughs> it's okay. You know? Um, well, you know, I just didn't want it to make an us versus them thing because right, I think we all we are complicit in getting. I mean, I've I bought cheap food for a long time, right? You know? and, I, and if you can't afford to buy cheap food, at least you're conscious about this way and supporting farms in any way that you can that, that are growing in this way. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. I'm speaking to the choir here. I right know. <laughs> no, no, it's it's great. Um, I want to just quickly, you know, you've you've brought up many times um, soil quality, and I wonder if you can just give listeners a sense of what your soil looks like today compared to when you started. It looks like dark picture, like um, blue cheese that's black, (laughs) (laughs) crumbly and full of um, porosity and aggregates that are, you know, holding space for oxygen and water and life. Um, it really is beautiful. And people, a lot of times when I show people like the worms that are just like out there in the soil, they're like, did you bring the worms back? Like, how did you find, where did you buy the worms? I'm like, no, this stuff just returned. Um, we've increased soil organic matter, um, between one and 3%. And in some areas as high as 11%, but I think that's a little bit of an anomaly. It might be that's because like of, we, we, we probably because we added so much mulch, you know, but I would say okay. I would feel safer saying a one to three percent. Yeah. That, okay. Right. And like, you know, like a one percent increase of soil organic matter on one acre of land is can hold up to 16,000 to 20,000 gallons of water in the top six inches. Mm. While it's also requiring the sequestration of 21 tons of atmospheric carbon. Um, so it's an incredibly valuable thing. Right. Um and we're finding that, um, you know, through the process of, of incredible microorganism diversity, you know, more nitrogen is becoming available, not just from, you know, um, legumes and things like that, mm. but just, you know, nitrogen that may have been locked up in the soil. And so there's some uh, areas of the farm that we hardly use any nitrogen on. Hmm. Uh, and times we've been accused of not using, uh, uh, using too much when we haven't really added any. Some of the citrus is a little bit more difficult. We've had a hard time figuring out what that ratio is on the lemons. Hmm. Um, but it is really cool. Like we're seeing the difference. You know, we've, we've tested and we're seeing, you know, incredible um, uh, colonies of uh, mycorrhizae. You know, we've done like root tip analysis. And uh, we did an egg analysis study. I think it was over five or seven years. And we watched the nutrient analysis of the eggs increase. And mm. there was no change in the feed. The only difference was the health of the pastures they were grazing on. Oh, that's really cool. And that's, yeah, it's yeah. a really great indicator. Um, you know, but it, it's really, yeah, it's been, those are the things when you start to like um, confirm it with science and not let science be the only thing that leads you. But when you confirm it with science, I find that process to be really telling and um, inspiring. Right. So, it's funny, you know, when I was watching the film, a lot of it, a a good proportion of it is about the challenges of farming this way, about how hard it is. It's honest. (laughs) Um, But I could tell from the film and from talking to you now that you believe that it's worth it. Why? I, uh, that's a really good question. Uh, How, how deep do I go? (laughs) Um, I have a four-year-old son. You know, and I and 
even before that, I felt the same motivation, but I feel like, you know, I don't know what the word sustainability means anymore, but I know that if, you know, if we don't leave them something like soil, then there will be no such thing as sustainable farming that we at the very least need to leave them that. And, and I can't think of a better way to lead like a purposeful life and feel this reconnection to the very thing that has given us, you know, all life. And through that process, I feel, I actually feel safer. Like I feel less scared about, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the stressors that plague us when it comes to like looking at the environment and the wrongs of, you know, culture that, or that, you know, that, that we have as humanity have, have contributed to its destruction. I, I just feel safer being in it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful. Um, so I think we need to wrap up soon, but, um, that's I, I almost don't want to like ask you another technical question because that's just such a cool place to, to land. Um, but I, I do want to ask you, um, where can people see this film? Oh, that's a good technical question. Though. <laughs> we can end there. Um, it's going to be um, in theaters throughout um, North America starting um, May 10th. And if it's not in your city on May 10th, it will be in your city hopefully a week or two after that. Um, the farm's called Apricot Lane Farms. You can find out more about it there. So apricotlanefarms.com. And of course, the biggest little farm movie.com. And um, the trailers, uh, you can find the trailer on you know YouTube or Facebook page or something like that. But I really hope people get out to see it. And it's, you know, uh, you don't have to be a lover of nature, apparently, or a lover of farms to enjoy the film, because that's usually what I hear from people who say, I hate nature, but I love this film. <laughs> and I'm like, you hate nature? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Stupid nature. <laughs> <laughs> one, one last question. Sure. Would you encourage young people to get into farming this way? With consciousness, and I would say work for as many farmers as you can. Learn through their mistakes you know, sign up to be a, a woofer. And at the very least, you, before you leave, like, you, 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 owe it, you owe it to yourself to understand the immense complexity that happens every day beneath your feet so that you can live. John, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next Wednesday. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter, Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. 
Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.